The following podcast contains explicit language. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump! <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the N-word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks, no one but his own kind, the rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose chief spokesperson once asked whether 9-11 was an inside job. I'm talking about Katrina Pearson, someone we've mainly ignored on the show. She raised that question on Twitter in 2012, for real. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So Hillary Clinton gave an important speech in Reno on Thursday, maybe the most important speech of her campaign so far. She charged Donald Trump with taking hate groups mainstream and helping a radical fringe take over one of America's two political parties. It was a brutal speech and right on the money. She reviewed Trump's history of racial discrimination, starting with his early days keeping African Americans out of his father's apartment buildings. She nailed him for leading the racist conspiracy lunacy known as the birther movement. And she talked about the way he has encouraged the alt-right fringe, by passing along anti-Semitic imagery and retweeting an account called At White Genocide, TM. But my guest today thinks the real significance of that speech wasn't just the way Clinton nailed Trump as a conspiratorial racist. It was that she let mainstream Republicans, including a lot who say they plan to vote for Trump, off the hook. I'll be back with that interview right after we do the tweets. Just watched a recap of Crooked Hillary's speech. Very short and lies. She is the only one fear-mongering. Hillary Clinton's short speech is pandering to the worst instincts in our society. She should be ashamed of herself. Hillary Clinton is using race baiting to try to get African Americans to vote. But they know she is all talk, no action. Hillary Clinton only knows how to make a speech when it's a hit on me. No policy and always very short. Stamina? Media gives her a pass. How quickly people forget that crooked Hillary called African-American youth super predators. Has she apologized The Clintons are the real predators. My guest today is Slate's national correspondent, Will Salatan. Uh, It's about time I had him on the show. Will, welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, Jake. Uh, Glad to join you. So let's start with the basics. Will, why was this speech important? Well, this speech was not just another policy speech. It wasn't an attack on Trump's, you know, energy policy or his economic policy. It was an attack on his entire candidacy, on the soul of the Trump campaign. So it's an indictment of Trump driving wedges uh, within the United States, within um, the American people, targeting ethnic groups. Uh, Her attack was an attack on what she's calling the alt-right, which is sort of... 
a nice new way of describing racists. And when she says about Trump that he is courting, coddling, and representing these people on the alt-right, she's essentially making an argument that no decent person would support this campaign. So that's an argument that appeals very broadly, not just to liberals, not just to progressives, but to any Republican or independent who considers him or herself a decent American. She really had her ducks in a row going through Trump's whole history, going back to his days pursuing discrimination and his father's housing complexes, his father's apartment buildings and his birtherism. I mean, Michelle Goldberg, our, our, our colleague, said this speech was not shooting to wound. This was shooting to kill. Yeah, um, it was definitely going at the thing that is most likely to repel the most people. So if you were designing a speech politically, you would choose this topic if you wanted to basically give the broadest array of American voters the most reason to stay as far away from this guy as possible. Now, that's not that doesn't necessarily get you to a lot of other Republicans who don't embrace this alt-right constituency as clearly as Trump does. But if you're trying to kill off Trump, it's the most effective way. So what's the message to liberals and Democrats is this guy is such an extreme racist and here is chapter and verse, but they already agree. What's the message to mainstream Republicans? The message to mainstream Republicans is that you can be a Republican, that you can embrace the legacy and the agenda of past Republican presidential nominees, of the current Republican congressional leadership, of the history of the Republican Party, and reject Donald Trump at the same time. In fact, the message is that you should reject Donald Trump if you believe what conservatives have historically spoken for. And in painting this portrait, Clinton went through a wide range of issues. So she wasn't just, for example, addressing Trump's domestic agenda, but his foreign policy agenda. Clinton argues Trump is a tool of Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, in a way that no previous Republican nominee would have stood for. You know, here we had four years ago Mitt Romney running for president, ridiculed by some Democrats for saying that Russia was our main foreign policy threat. And now we have a Republican nominated for president who embraces Russia, who completely rejects that. So, so Clinton is sending a clear message to the Republican Party and to conservatives in general that they can still be Republicans, that they can still be conservatives, and that in doing so, they should reject Trump. You write, she's not using Trump to take down the whole Republican Party. She's not going to tie him around the necks of House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and the rest of the congressional GOP. She plans to work with these men. She's sinking Trump but sending lifeboats for Republicans. Yeah, and this is one where I have to admit I disagree with some of my colleagues, um, and I don't know which of us is right, but I know that um, some of the editors and writers at Slate believe that in making this speech, Clinton was trying to separate Trump from Republican voters, from Republican office holders, basically just in order to kill Trump. And that is a sensible thing to do in politics. You want as broad a vote for you as possible. It is another leap to argue, as I'm arguing, that she's actually thinking past the election, that she's not just trying to separate these people from Trump in order to win votes, but that she is throwing bouquets or lifeboats or whatever metaphor you choose because she wants the support of these Republicans 
after the election. There are plenty of my colleagues who think I'm naive in that. I might be naive in that. I just hope it's true, and I do think there's some evidence for it. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure which of our colleagues disagrees with you, but I think you're right. And evidence on, on your side is that Democrats in tough Senate races were unhappy with this strategy because they're trying to tie the often moderate Republicans they're trying to defeat to Trump. And she's saying, oh, look, decent Republicans don't support this guy. It makes it harder for them. Right. So part of my argument is that strategically, if you really wanted to hurt the whole party, you wouldn't have given this speech this way. To take a very simple example, Hillary Clinton referred to Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, describing Donald Trump's remarks about Gonzalo Curiel, the, the uh, federal judge who didn't rule Trump's way in, in, as his, as his Trump, this is a complicated issue, to the Trump University case, which I know you've addressed. Um, Trump has complained that this judge who hasn't ruled his way in the case is doing so essentially because the judge is Mexican-American. And this is a judge, of course, is born in the United States, an American of Mexican descent. And Trump has said explicitly, because this judge is of Mexican descent, he's not ruling my way. He's biased against me based on his ethnicity. Now, I, b- I believe that was nutty racist statement number 117. We're now at 295. But yes, yeah, go on. Yes, and yeah. of us Thank you for the refresher in that one. So Paul Ryan, the, the House Speaker, was asked about this and had either the decency or the necessity, take your pick, to say it was the textbook definition of a racist comment. So Hillary quotes Paul Ryan saying that about Trump. Now, Hillary could then have gone on to say, as I wish viscerally she would have said, after saying that, Paul Ryan still continues to support this candidate, Trump, who he just identified as a racist. Right. That's what she didn't say. And the same thing for John McCain and Mitch McConnell. She kind of gave them credit for being part of this decent Republican Party that she says isn't fundamentally racist, which is a point that a lot of liberals disagree with because they think even if it was less explicit, the Republican Party's been playing at dog whistle racist politics for decades. Right. And I agree with my colleagues that what Trump has done is to take the dog whistles of the past Republican uh, presidential nominees and candidates in general. Um, he's taken the, the party of Willie Horton and Jeremiah Wright, and he's just taken it one step further and made it explicit. So um, in a way, I think this is a split between reacting to Trump viscerally and reacting to Trump constructively. So me and my colleagues who have been watching Trump all this time, as you have, a lot of us have gotten very angry, right? And if you get really angry at Donald Trump and and at the party that nominated him, even somebody like me, and I think that I would would say that I share some of your sentiments here, I'm a center-left guy. I'm not a left-left guy. So I would be happy in general to sort of make nice with the Republican Party. But during this campaign, statements number one through 250 from Donald Trump expressing his racism and various other things like his attacks on the Constitution, which we all have all noticed, they've gotten me so angry that, like my liberal colleagues, I just want to take down this whole party. I just want to when, – when Hillary started giving this speech, I was hoping that she was going to say – 
not only is it a Donald Trump problem, but it's a Paul Ryan problem, and it's a Mitch McConnell problem, and it's a problem of this whole party that coddles and tacitly supports racism. But she didn't do that. And I think the difference is Hillary is not like me. She's not a writer. She's not a blogger. She's not somebody who can just mouth off and say whatever she feels like saying. She has to actually govern the country. And so I give her moral points. I think she made a decision. I am going to extend a hand to the Paul Ryans and the Mitch McConnells, because after this mess is over and after we defeat this clown, we actually have to run the country and we have to work together. And she gave the kind of speech you would give if you were going to forgive and forget and move on and try to build a coalition to pass legislation that the country needs. Well, you've put your finger on something super interesting and super important here, and I think you're exactly right, and it partly speaks to her confidence right now because she's thinking about being president, not just what can I do to inflict maximum damage and win the election. But there has to be an issue around her campaign about Democrats and their hopes of winning the Senate because if she can tie – if she did try to tie John McCain, Kelly Ayotte, all these, these other Republicans who privately hate Trump but publicly are officially still support him, they might lose. Democrats might win the Senate and she might not need quite as much cooperation from the Republican Party to govern the country. Yeah, and that's a difficult balancing act for her. I, I wouldn't know if I were in her campaign how to advise her on something like that. I guess I would say that those candidates who are running against the vulnerable Republican senators can still say all of those things. Does her speech undercut them? Perhaps. I don't know if she can afford to sort of think that way. Um, it might be that she just sort of has to consult her gut about what is the most likely way for her to be able to govern afterward. So, for example, so, so she could go out and, and give her speech knowing that the down-ballot Democrats can specifically target a, a Rob Portman, for example, or a Pat Toomey, and perhaps they will. But everything that I know about Hillary Clinton from her record as First Lady, not just in Washington but in Arkansas, and her Senate, uh, her career as a senator, and her career as Secretary of State, tells me that she genuinely believes in working across party lines, that it's viscerally in her nature to extend a hand rather than to try to maximize the damage she can inflict on the other party. And I don't know whether that is the smartest political strategy in terms of getting the greatest number of Senate seats or the greatest number of House seats, but I think that's just in her nature. And in the end, as we see with Donald Trump, candidates do what is in their nature. Fortunately, her nature is constructive. But isn't she miscalculating in exactly the way Barack Obama miscalculated? I mean, Obama came into office and said, I'm a reasonable person. These are reasonable people. Let's build a bridge. And for eight years, they've slammed the door in his face. And maybe, you know, in his second term, he started to realize that he wasn't going to get any cooperation from them ever, either because they hated him too much or because they thought anything that he passed was a defeat for them. Why would that be any different with Hillary Clinton? They may hate her for different reasons, but they don't hate her any less. That's a darn good criticism of this approach. And my best answer to it would be that it's not 2009. It's going to be 2017. It's going to be eight years into the obstructionist era. Um, you know, some people feel that this has gone back further, but for some time, Republicans have not been functioning as a governing party. They've been, as we've all noticed, 
the party of no. And the, the argument against Hillary Clinton doing this, behaving like Obama, is that she's going to get treated the same way as Obama. But um, there is an argument that after eight years of being out of power, a party begins to absorb some discipline. You can argue that the Democratic Party by 1988 was a different party from the party of 1980, or certainly that the Democratic Party of 1992 was willing to do things to move to the middle in a way that it wasn't in 1984. I mean, that's historically demonstrable. The Republican Party hasn't yet shown the kind of signs of um, tempering itself that Democrats had by 1988, but I think we're beginning to see some, time, some signs of fatigue. So, for example, the autopsy of the 2012 election seems not to have chastened Republicans by 2016. But after defeats in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and especially after what I think will be a decisive refutation of Trumpism as a, as a majority as a, a way of winning a majority in this country, I think there will be a, a growing number of Republicans who will begin to behave in a disciplined way and be willing to reach across to do a few things. That's her bet here, that having chosen to destroy itself by nominating Donald Trump, the Republican Party is not going to be in much of a position to dictate terms after the election. They're going to have fewer seats in the House. They might lose the Senate. They might barely keep it. But they're going to be a pretty bankrupt looking party. And it's going to be harder for them to then say, we're not going to work with you on anything, despite what might be a landslide mandate. Yeah. And, and, and as we're talking about this, I'm also thinking about the necessity from Clinton's point of view. I mean, the chances, yes, she could pick up seats, she could pick up more seats in the Senate, more seats in the House if she tries to take, if she tries to tie Trump to the whole party and take the most number of Republicans down. But she's not going to get to the number that she would need to govern the country that way, right? She's not going to. So let's take, for example, Obamacare. The next president, her, is going to have to fix Obamacare. There's clearly problems with insurers leaving the exchanges. This is a piece of legislation that in an ordinary universe, both parties would help to tinker with, to fix it so that it would work. Um, They haven't been able to get that, but she's going to have to get some Republican votes to do that. If she polarizes Washington further, it's very unlikely that she's going to be able to pass anything to tweak Obamacare. So I think it's sensible of her. I think she's more likely to be able to get enough votes to do it that way than she is by trying to pick up extra Democrats and then hoping that some Republicans will tolerate a president who got elected that way. So I think there's a necessity argument for her behaving the way she's doing and throwing lifeboats as well. So, Will, last question for you. Why now? Why was August 25th the right time to give the speech and not right after the Republican convention and not closer to the election after the debates? Is this what is what does it signify that she gave this speech last week? Well, I think up to this point, she was observing the ancient rule of politics that if your opponent is in the middle of committing suicide, <laughs> don't interrupt him. And that's what Trump was doing for the entire time leading up to his convention and after it, except it started to be within the last two weeks that he started to get some sanity. And it's not entirely clear where that came from. But he started to give these speeches. If you've been following Trump, he changed his uh, stump speech. He started reading from the teleprompter and he started saying, I want the votes of African Americans. I want the votes of Hispanics. I will be a president for all Americans. Now, Trump 
I don't think was sincere in saying this, but he started to say it not once, not twice, but in every speech. So clearly he changed his message and was trying to recover his credibility with mainstream Americans, with decent people who believe that we should be in a united country. And so I think it was time for the Clinton campaign to step in and cut that off and to say, this is not credible. This is a man who throughout his career and throughout his campaign has governed as a divider and has tried to divide this country along ethnic lines in a very dangerous sectarian way. So that's why she had to step in now. Whether it will work, I don't know, but I think that's why she chose the time that she did. And, of course, there are exceptions to every political adage, the uh, never interrupt your enemy when he's committing suicide. This might be the exception to that. I think Trump was still, uh, maybe not the previous couple of days, he was still committing suicide. She gave him a healthy push off the ledge. Yeah, um, I would agree that Trump was trying to stop committing suicide, but that being Trump, he was finding it very difficult to do so. And there are a <laughs> lot of things that he's been saying in the week since he started doing this that are essentially relapses. So, yeah, I wouldn't bet against Trump uh, going back to being the Trump of old. Will Salatan is Slate's national correspondent. His piece last week was Hillary's lifeboat to the GOP. Will, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Jake. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. And John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I love that guy. And hey, did you like the show? Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Dwayne Wade's cousin was just shot and killed walking her baby in Chicago. Just what I've been saying. African-Americans will vote Trump.